Wings for the game. Boom. Cash back. New lucky jersey. Boom. Cash back. Even a last-minute ice run can score you some cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, we said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who's taking the W, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees? Period. I'm telling you, this one is a game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply. <laughs> the maniacal oh, laugh it's there after a Canuck lost to finish the month of March and uh, I think we're up to 60, 65 people everybody's tuning in, the VIPs are here with us Drancer, you said all along this team was not going to be playing meaningful hockey in April well in fairness lost. in fairness to me Farhan, I said I didn't think the club was going to be playing meaningful hockey in November so credit to them. <laughs> they they did play meaningful hockey in, in March, but to be totally honest, the chance of them really getting into this race, you know, like if they'd won tonight versus lost, the swing is like four or five percent. That's not really left. No, but no, but, in, but in fairness, during that homestand or going into their that homestand, it was in their hand. And I'm not saying they were favored or should have, but they were in a position then that yes. they, they could have they could have put you know like it was up to what 24% at one point correct so look it was not reasonable or fair to expect this team which we've discussed its construction for you know like 10 months now going back to last offseason at least and when we talk about their construction it, it simply wasn't fair or reasonable or realistic to expect this team to continue to play at that pace like at some point they were going to have to stub their toe. It was just going to happen. And now you look at it on top of that, and now a few injuries set in, and you lose Tyler Mott. And that's how thin this group is, that a guy like Tyler Mott, and I'm not suggesting they shouldn't have traded him, but think of how that fundamentally altered this team's ability to forecheck, which was the key to their improved play under Bruce Boudreaux. And, you know, their, their penalty kill managed to sustain a little bit without Mott. It wasn't good for them today, but you lose him. Then all of a sudden, you lose Nils Hoaglander. And Nils Hoaglander is a second-year player who had a sophomore slump from an offensive standpoint. Like, he did not have a great year. That said, you still have your lines kind of balanced out when Nils Hoaglander's available. And then today, you lose Bo Horvat. And then you had a couple games with Noelise Pedersen because of the wrist injury. And, like, one by one, this team just wasn't – deep enough to begin with and then overall you have to look at this group and say they've been healthy all season but just the slightest little thing right can just get get that house of cards to just fall because it's just not that well built right so it, it was not realistic to expect that pace 
to continue when they were playing 650 hockey. And yep. you just see just the smallest little bit. And then, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about Thatcher Demko, right? They needed insanely out of this world Thatcher Demko, and they haven't got it for three weeks. They've had just very good Thatcher Demko. And the first goal today wasn't good, right? And, you know, Ilias Pedersen postgame and throughout the game took a lot of heat for spectacular goal followed by spectacular giveaway that led to a shorthanded goal. But, you know, we had the exact same moment with Thatcher Demko who made an insane save on Tarasenko. And the first goal, he's got a clear look at and it just squeezes through. And he's talked about those strange goals that have squeaked through him, right? But those are the fine margins this team is playing with, right? That they need everything to line up correctly. And if it doesn't, here we are. There's a lot to unpack in what you just went through, I think. And, you know. Well, you better get packed because you're on a trip tomorrow. I am on a trip tomorrow. And you're driving me the first the first leg of it. We'll get into that toward the end. <laughs> Look, the fact is, is that Thatcher Demko was playing at a godlike pace for two and a half months. And no one sustains that except God himself. Right. Uh, you know, no mortal can play that well for that long. Like it, it just is what it is. And, you know, when you look at Thatcher Demko over the past 13 games, for example, so this is, you know, the, the club's last 15 games, Demko's appeared in 13 of them, right? He's allowed 36 goals against, and he's allowed 36, and the Canucks have permitted 36.7 goals against. So he's stopped less than an expected goal over his last 13 stops. And that means that he's been very good, right? Like he's been better than expected. But if you go beyond that, you'll, you'll find him being like plus 20, <laughs> you know, something outrageous. Um, you can't win like that forever in this league. You have to be good enough that when your goalie plays like that, you clean up, you know, and this team did to, to its credit, this team did take advantage of Demko's stellar play. And then, you know, even as Demko's play became a little more human, a little more mortal, still very good, the shooting took over. And they all of a sudden were finishing and converting on everything. But, you know, one thing that I thought was really interesting from the postgame analysis, because other than the chase on goal early, right, I can't think of a chance that the Canucks had that was from a, an area of the ice that I would call a dirty area, right? Everything else was kind of perimeter oriented it didn't feel like the Canucks paid enough of a price tonight frankly and after the game Bruce Boudreaux said he didn't think they were big enough to get position in 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 this type of game okay so alternatively over the course of the season right we've heard coaches say they're not big enough they're not fast enough <laughs> right like we they're not run and gun um you know I mean they're not a great defensive team, although they've had excellent defensive results. Um, I mean, so what are they? You know, like what what are they're they're kind of just short of being good enough everywhere and all in to accomplish it, which has really been our criticism and and our pretty like our through line through the dark part of the early part of the season, through the heights of the Boudreaux era, which I'd say it's fair to to say that this podcast product anyway was a little less enthused about not not that we were not enthusiastic about what Boudreaux accomplished but I don't think we got carried away and, and believed that this team had hit a new level and you know now that the team's sort of struggling again 
a little bit. And and granted, it's not like they're always struggling. They're just inconsistent. I, I think it's fair to say that this team, as they've sort of found their level, has just kind of been inconsistent over the course of the past, you know, I, I don't know how long it's been, but certainly 15 feels like the last 15 games. They've just kind of been inconsistent. I, you know, maybe you can even date it, go back, go back further than that. Like if you go back the last 20, five games 13 wins so 13 9 3 that's pretty good it's not bad it's 580 you know that's that's like playoff team that's like fringe playoff team you know but they haven't been stellar they really haven't been stellar dating back a while here um, yeah and really this comes down to a team that's that went on two heaters right like they went on a heater when when uh, bruce got hired Right. And then it, you know, got derailed a little bit by COVID breaks and what have you. And then, you know, late February, early March, kind of somewhere in that window, they went on another heater. Right. And that kind of skews the overall numbers because big picture, right? Like there were, there was longer gaps than those heaters where they've been, you know, above 500. Right. But those two runs got everybody into it. And look, it was, it was good. It was fun. And, and I think that, um, you know, it, it was a positive thing that they went in this direction. I don't think that uh, their performance altered what the organization's evaluations and decisions were around the trade deadline. Like the only thing that comes bad out of this is that they're going to, you know, they're not picking in the top 10, right? Like they're going to wind up finishing well enough that, you know, rather than they won't be in the top 16, but they'll probably be around somewhere around 18 or 20. Right. And that gets you not in a great spot as far as the draft is concerned. You know, we, we've got lots of time to talk about tank nation, but ultimately it didn't change what they did at the deadline because they would have done more had those deals been available. So they did the minimum with Tyler Mott and settled for what was available. Right. Um, you know, they, they went on a run. They showed some character. They did a lot of good things. They maximized everything. And, you know, here we are right where we expected to be. Yeah. I mean, 90 points. <laughs> so they're yeah, a yeah. 90 point team. Um, and, you know, and they'll have a chance still. I mean, they're not 99 points is still their maximum. So you can probably afford to lose two more, three more, whatever. But there's no suspense here. And there hasn't truly been suspense since, you know, since the Detroit game. That was really the last time where there was like maybe a chance that they could have clawed in, um, you know, where, where I was nervous <laughs> for at least a second. <laughs> Don't like, hey, that. No, I'm not, not nervous, but you know what I'm saying? Like, Hey, okay. Do I have this wrong? Could I have this wrong? Right. For the most part, all season, even when they were winning games, I was like, you know, I, I stand by what I've said and seen. And there's only been a few times where I thought, okay, I better check that. I better, I better really dive deep and, and make sure that I'm right here. And, you know, there were, there were, I'd say there was a moment right, right in the middle of that homestand where I thought, okay, maybe, maybe they have a chance to really surprise me. I'm still not seeing it, but the special teams are now trending in a good enough direction. Their five on five game is middle of the road enough that maybe if Demko keeps this going and their shooting luck continues for a little bit longer, they could make this interesting. There was like one moment and then, you know, some no show games against Detroit um, pounded by the flames, the Buffalo game, their defense really fell off a cliff and then they go on the road and their defense is great. Stellar. And then tonight again, they had a good start and then they completely sprung a leak. 
right? Like in the latter half of that first period, the Blues started to generate odd man stuff, right? It started to look like the Canucks team that we saw in the last homestand, which I don't think we saw even in the Blues loss last week. And then, and then somehow they just did, didn't generate anything until the last five minutes of the game. Like I know they scored, but it's like, you know, the chase on goal, great play by Brad Richardson, um, blues error, right? Nick Letty misreads it. It basically becomes chase on in front of the net. He's going to score from there. Right. Then you've got the Pedersen goal, which he creates out of nothing. The blues like bobble the puck by an inch and Pedersen just creates something. Um, We'll get into the Pedersen giveaway in a minute. And then, and then, but, but then after that, after that, like there was nothing doing in the third, nothing. No, and not until the last five minutes. You're right. Considering you're down one and the stakes of that game and granted you're down Horvat, you're running a short bench, you're tired at the end of a long trip, but there was just nothing there. In nothing there until the last and five Boudreaux minutes. said after the game that they looked tired. They looked like a yeah. team that had played five and eight, and they did, right? And and they totally. didn't have enough. They looked tired in Dallas. They looked tired yeah. in Dallas. And by the way, I did the same trip as them, flying commercial, and I'm gassed. I'm completely worn out. And I'm not even well, doing any athletic activity. I'm just I think, eating. I think Bruce was talking about you as much as he was talking about the I team. Think you, I but, think but listen, and we should we should stay micro for a bit because there's a lot of time to talk about big picture here. But um, you want to talk about Pedersen. I want to talk about the officiating, right? Uh, like Garland getting high-sticked at the end of the game or late in the game there. And then earlier there were some plays that they just, you know, like such obvious calls that are missed in, you know, and maybe it's only a high-stakes game in this market. But, like, what are we doing here when referees don't want to call those types of plays and you're, you're affecting the game equally? You, you know what I mean? And, in fact, more so because – you know, Patrick Johnson pointed this out. That's it's more controversial when you don't call it. I, I mean, I agree. Yeah, and the non-call on Garland negates a heavy shift. Like the Canucks look like they're cooking. They look like they're putting the Blues under dress, and all of a sudden it's Blues puck, and the puck is cleared. Partly because he goes down because he's. I thought it was it was a high stick, right? Or slash? I thought it was high stick. Yeah. Yeah. So. But it but it negates a heavy shift. It negate, negates a Canucks possession late. Um, you know, inexcusable. Got to call that. That has to be a call. I also thought the um, there was an interference in the first period that I thought was yeah, particularly yeah. egregious on the level of the missed trip on Quinn Hughes late in that wild game um, on Yoel Eriksson Ek, which honestly was one of the worst non calls I've seen this year across across like. In the world of trips, that was as clear cut as it got. I was like outraged for like forty eight hours after that one. Not not, like, <laughs> not publicly, just like as a watcher of hockey, I was just like, you cannot get more obvious than that. And and the fact that it wasn't called, you know, baffled me. Like baffled me. I was confused after the game for a solid forty eight hours heading into the Dallas game. Anyway, really bad. That officiating was really bad. And I don't know. I don't know what the league does at this point, but you cannot deny that we're at. We're. we're it feels like we're reaching a tipping point with the officiating. Of yeah, the but do we just games. say? Do we just say that in this market? Like, how bad is the criticism elsewhere? I know we had that stretch a couple. Oh, you saw. You saw, you saw the NHL. You saw. You saw the NHL. Like the Alan Walsh tweet that the league told all the GMs, reminded them that they'd get fined. The GMs all teed off on it at the GM meetings in Boca. You saw Kyle Dubas's reaction. You know, yeah, but you know, you know what? Like you say, tipping point bullshit. The the National Hockey League sucks. 
and, and like they do you have any faith that they would even recognize when a tipping point came upon them right like this is the worst run of all the major professional sports leagues it is the most archaic of all of them on so many levels especially when it comes to discipline and officiating these guys are a joke and this is how they want it to be right the transparency when it comes to injuries all of this there is nothing to see here we saw the game management stuff with tim peel the league did nothing they threw him under the bus what on earth makes you think we've hit a tipping point this is the national hockey league it is a garage league and it is a joke i think players i think you're seeing it in how players react and discuss it i think you're seeing you're you're about to see changes in how sponsors react to and discuss it and if the quality of officiating persists in the playoffs, I think we're going to reach a point where enough is enough. I really do. Me, look, the only thing that would change. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I know it's archaic. I know it's archaic, but there's a, there is, I think, a lot that's changing under the surface of a conservative league. And I think, you know, a million drops in the bucket start to start to matter and start to be noticed. And I think you're getting there right now. I think the you're only getting thing there that changes this. very the rapidly. Only, the only thing that changes this is the gambling industry. And according to the league, that has made no difference on their transparency or lack thereof when it comes to injuries. So if all yes. of a sudden, okay, so all of a sudden, if it does in this area too, an officiating Affecting outcomes, affecting wagers, affecting just people's ability to have faith in the league and wanting to bet in it. Because that's what it comes down to, right? No transparency, no accountability. They make ridiculous decisions. Nobody comes out to talk about it. Nobody has to face the music. And and the culture of game management is just allowed to continue over and over and over. So unless that industry loses faith, this isn't changing. It, Yeah, I, I just... I, I can't stand it. I it it drives me nuts. Hey, let's uh, let's set the scene. Let's do a little reset here, Farhan. So we're doing a live vancast tonight. We're reacting to the Canucks four three loss to the St. Louis Blues. A performance from Vancouver that I think we'd say was worse than the scoreline indicated. Farhan, it yeah, was for good. me anyway. Anyway, we're we're gonna get into the game. Farhan and I are gonna discuss some of the issues around the team, some of the things we see, and then we're gonna open the stage. Four callers. We'll go for, you know, an hour to 90 minutes as we usually do. So long as you guys are still listening, still chatting with us, still putting up your hands, we'll keep going. So thank you so much. And we we are always grateful to have the VIPs join us. The interest in this format has been through the roof and we've really enjoyed it. Like we've really come to have a lot of fun interacting with and learning from all of our VIPs. So thanks for being here. That's sort of how we'll structure it. Um, you know, Farhan, I want to, I want to let, you know, we've already talked officiating and we've talked size, two things that Bruce Boudreaux brought up post game, but let's go through, let's go through our hot buttons and I, I want to give you a chance. Sorry. I'm going to start actually. I'm going <laughs> to, that lasted about a second. Well, I was going to get, I was going to give you a chance, but then I didn't want to give you a chance to, also, to tee off, to tee off okay, on, okay. Right. on my guy. On already. I know. Well, I didn't want to give you a chance to tee off on my guy, Elias Pettersson before I had a chance. It. No, before I had a chance to caption, um, you know, Elias Pettersson scores two goals tonight, right? But. A crucial giveaway and a backbreaking Robert Thomas goal the other way. Yeah, I'm, I'm having a tough time. Line. I'm having a tough time throwing PD under the bus on that play. 
you're in the offensive zone. You're below the, you're, you're like, you're almost, you're not at the hash marks, but you're at the, the top of the circles and you're trying to make a play in the middle of the ice. That has to be a safe zone. You're not at the blue line, right? Like where he made the play, there were still two players behind him. Um, I, like I've, I've seen worse from him and others. I've seen worse from JT Miller on a regular basis. I've seen worse from, you know, Oliver Ekman Larson at the blue line. Like, I, you know, where that happened and what was behind him. Was it a bad giveaway? Yes. But, you know, like, I, I, I don't know. I'm not, he was their best player tonight. He was their best player tonight. Best player tonight. You are, you are right. You, this is a, this is a good take by you. You are correct. I think you are dead on on this take, like a hundred percent fully correct. Elias Pettersson is going to get a lot of criticism for that giveaway, but by himself, man, primarily, right. But if they had, if they had 12 other players going the way he was going tonight, as dialed in as he was dialed in tonight, it's a different game entirely. Right. I mean, you can't, you can't kill your skill guys for making skill plays in games that at the mo at the time that that giveaway happened, I thought the goals were going to be impossible to come by in this game. Like it felt like a two one game. Like I thought, wow, the fact that they have a lead in this game and it feels like for sure the under is going to play for sure. There's going to be very few goals, both ways. Like this is a good spot to be in, you know, they score there. It's over probably. And you have to be able to try things there. You have to. I want to see Pedersen try to carry the puck into the middle of the ice more. Yeah, we, we complained earlier. Like uh, My complaints earlier about his game in the first two months of the season was he wasn't attempting to be dynamic. So now he is, and I'm going to criticize him. That's not happening. Right? And like to me, the, like admirable restraint. Admirable restraint, Farhan. No, no, it's just, it's just fact. And to me, like, and again, I've, I've gotten on the Demko thing a little bit because he's like, he's tired, right? So this is not a, you know, Thatcher Demko is all of a sudden not the same goal. Like he, he's tired. And to me, when the second started or, you know, the, the probably five minutes of the game leading up to that first goal, you can see the Blues were pressing and the Canucks needed a save because the second that puck went in, they wilted and the game changed so fast. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like to me, that one bothers me a little more. And again, like Thatcher Demko has been their MVP all season. And, you know, even though in the last two weeks, they've been able to relieve him a little bit, right? The last 10 days, they've been able to relieve him and give him a reasonable amount of rest. I just think it's all caught up to him. And it was the definition of the type of goal Demko has talked about in his one availability we had for him in the last three weeks when he said, yeah, some strange goals have been squeezing through. That was that goal. That was the save the Canucks needed. That changed the game. I think you're right. I, I mean, I don't disagree. And I think the, yeah, I mean, I, th- I don't disagree. And I, I look, I mean, the final assessment is that the blues were worth 2.83 expected goals and actual retail value was four. So, you know, I mean, that's hard to overlook. And now all of that said, and I think this really reflects what I saw of the game, right? In terms of shots for and against 24, 25, in Vancouver's favor in terms of high danger scoring chances for per natural stat trick 13 to six in the blues favor that completely matches the game I watched. 
Yeah, completely. And, and just scoring chances overall, and not just high danger, 27 to 18. But the Canucks had the Corsi edge. They had 54.3. They were 54.35 yeah. on well, that end of it, but it shows you it was it all was cosmetic a, around the outside, right? It felt like the November Canucks, to be totally honest with you, where they were like, you know, they had their share of the puck. They had, they held it in the offensive end sometimes, but they just weren't generating quality. And it felt like they couldn't generate quality. And the only reason really that they were able to get three goals is that Elias Pettersson made some, made a couple of goals out of nothing, you know, like directed an impossible shot and redirected an impossible shot with the, with the, um, sort of, um, oh my goodness, with this, you know, the top end of a stick, like who does that? And the goal, the second goal, unreal, unbelievable. It was like, it was available for him in the high slot for half a second. And that was all he needed. Incredible. I, I felt like it was the November Canucks in terms of the possession. Except, he, not except he the wasn't ball. doing that in November. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but but that's also, I mean, you know, I think when you go through this season, when, when we do the postmortem, you know, one thing I think we'll probably have to note as we look at the impact of the coaching change, right, is – one thing they really didn't get in those first 25 games were any of the scintillating individual performances that they leaned on so heavily in the second half of the year. Right. And I think this is a crucial question, not because I'm trying to defend the first 25 games or Travis green or, or downplay the impact of Bruce Boudreau, who has had a far greater impact than I expected him to. Um, you know, I I'd say the thing I've been most wrong about this season was the impact that not Boudreau himself, but that a coaching change itself could have on this group. I, I expected it to be far smaller than it has been. But I also think you have to be very careful in buying into the Boudreau bump, if you're Canucks management, from the perspective of, oh, this team, since the coaching change, has a 600-plus point percentage. That's a clear playoff team. They don't need significant changes that would be the wrong conclusion to draw because for me, the first 25 games were also punctuated by a lack of dynamic offensive performances or, or any individual brilliance from, you know, JT Miller, Elias Pettersson, who was still fighting his wrist injury, Brock Besser, who was still fighting the back injury that he sort of tweaked prior to the season. Um, there was no moments of, of excellence from Vancouver's best players. And maybe that's to do with them tuning out the coach to some extent. I don't think you can write that off, but I think you have to also appreciate and accept, particularly because of the jump in shooting percentage, right? From five and a half under in the first 25 games to eight, basically under Boudreaux. Like, I think you have to be really careful about, about, slicing the Boudreaux era as if it's a new sustainable level of performance for this club. And and I think that's going to have a long-term tail. Like, I think that's something that the club has to be very, very careful about. Because for me, at the end of the day, you're still looking at a team that d- doesn't have enough in the bottom six, has Luke Shen playing in the top four, has Tyler Myers playing on the top pair, like, is just not quite good enough, is just short of good enough, basically all over the roster and to accomplish that has pushed 
you know, consecutive first round draft picks has, has mortgaged a ton of future in service of a team that, you know, like, like tonight, not big enough. Other games, not fast enough, like not big enough, not fast enough, not good enough all, all over the roster for me, regardless of who's behind the bench. Yeah, it's hard to argue. I mean, you know, there there are so many shortcomings in so many areas, uh, both from a positional standpoint and that structure and just an overall physical standpoint. And um, yeah, they've got to take a look at it. I mean, there's so many different spots. And, you know, we talked about this in our last show about just where to prioritize, right? Because you see them getting small and you talk about, okay, well, at some point in all of this, they need to you know get a little stronger. But where does that go? Because to me, speed is first and foremost with this group, right? And especially when you look at how the NHL is trending, you can't all of a sudden decide we need to be heavy enough to play against the St. Louis Blues and the Minnesota Wild, even if we can't skate and keep up with whoever, right? Uh, yeah. The fact that a player like Tyler Mott was, you know, I'm not saying he was the fastest player, but he was probably their most – he was their player that played most consistently the quickest right? mm. where he was just always noticeable like that. And he keyed their forecheck and what have you. And then you lose him for a fourth round pick. So that's his value across the rest of the league. And it really, really hurt you. It, so, it really, it, really did. Let's, uh, let's get to the VIPs. Here well, the sorry, sorry. I've got, I got, I got two more hot buttons. I want to get to right, right. for you. Ready? Okay. Yep. Hot button, hot button. Number two, the, is, is the bottom six. Okay, so let me let me give you let me give you the stat with either JT Miller or Elias Pettersson. We're going to write Bo Horvat's four minutes off because he left the game so early. So with either JT Miller or Elias Pettersson on the ice tonight and granted, they spent a little bit of time together. um, The Canucks outshot the Blues 16 to 10. Okay, with either Yuho Lamico or Brad Richardson on the ice, the Canucks were outshot by the Blues. 8 to 18. Okay? Now let's do the opposite. The Blues' fourth-line center tonight was Logan Brown. Their third-line center by ice time was Robert Thomas. In those minutes, the Blues outshot the Canucks 13 to 11. Okay? And then their top six, you know, fared okay. Ryan O'Reilly and Braden Shen, you're looking at actually, you know, an even an even 10-10. So the Blues bottom six for me was the difference maker. Nathan Walker gets the goal. Their bottom line gets the goal that that turns out to be the game winner. Yes, they're missing Mott, Hoaglander, and Highmore, and that's significant. Dickinson, too. I guess Sutter, too. But, I mean, the Blues were missing Kairou. (laughs) Like, the Blues were missing way better players by any (laughs) definition. Um. I mean, how much work is there to do, assuming full health, on this bottom six group? Like, how far away are they from being good enough, in your view, Farhan? Well, we talked about it for a long time. What's the biggest difference between last year's bottom six and this year's bottom six? <sighs> What's the difference? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I think the bottom six was way worse last year. Sure, but the Mark, biggest difference between last Mark year's Michaelis, year, Chase Howerluck, like I don't, th- big, I don't think the biggest difference. The biggest difference, transfer is they're not spending thirteen million dollars on one line in their bottom six, right? Like they're they don't have Louis Erickson in their bottom six. They don't have Beagle and Roussel's contract in their bottom six. But I'll tell you what, I'd take them right now 
if I knew all that money was coming <laughs> off the books this summer. Oh, I'm that's, no that's the, that is no the question. biggest difference between last year's. It's just more efficient, but it came at the expense of a, of a blue line that's now going to get even more difficult to rebuild. But the bottom six, like the bottom six is where you have to build in your pipeline, right? Like those players have to come up through the minors with the odd free agent acquisition. And there's none of that there, right? Like, you know, you've got to draft high to get your best players and you've got to make the odd blockbuster trade or signing to get your best players. But you sorry, really sorry. need to be able to build your bottom six through your, your own pipeline, right? And they, they've I done actually, none of that. I mean, I actually disagree with you. You know who the best checkers are in hockey? Tell me, you know, veteran players that you signed for the cheap? No, replacement no, no. level players? No, no, no. The best checkers in hockey are high picks that never made it <laughs> as high picks. Uh, fair enough. But right? then those like, players won't the come best, through your system. They'll be discarded by somebody, and then you bring them in in a new role. Or, or, or not. I mean, you know, I, I, think about, I think about the Dallas Stars checking line that I saw stifle Braden Point in game one of the Stanley Cup final in the bubble. And it included Jason Dickinson, who was a first-round pick, who never developed in anything offensively. Uh, probably still won't, but I still believe in him as a good defensive presence. You had Andrew Cogliano, who used to be like, the next one! You know, he was part of that class of, like, the next ones! With, like, Nilsson and Sam Gagne that really did uh, see, you know, You know why Andrew Cogliano got so hyped? Because he played junior hockey with Bob McKenzie's son. So Bobby talked about him a lot. There you go. There you go. But nonetheless, he was like the next one. Never developed into that. Became a hell of a checker. And Blake Como, 11th overall pick, right? Like the best, you know, you, go, go to go to that New York Rangers line, that uh, that third line that was so good for them. And you've got Derek Broussard, you know, top 15 pick. You've got Benoit Pouliot, fourth overall. Never made yeah. it. Never made it fourth overall. Um, you know, go look at the the Washington Capitals fourth line that played with Jay Beagle when they won the cup. And you've got Brett Connolly seventh overall. You've got Devon Smith Pelly. I think he was early second, but nonetheless, like top, top prospects, failed top players. Like the the that's the real cost of whiffing with Vertanen and Yolevi, for example, is like at the very least, you gotta get guys who are like Zach Cassian types or like, you know, yeah, they like, just have the ability to reinvent themselves, right? The ability to become useful checkers as opposed to nothing, literally nothing. And so, you know, one thing, one thing about this pick, even though it's going to be in the 15s, like, yeah, you may not get a star player with it, but if you get Olimata, you know, like if you get, yeah, yeah. if you get Blake Como, there's still value there. There's still value there. So long as the guys who fail, have the chops to turn themselves into meaningful defensive presences. All right. Wings for the game. Boom. Cash back. New lucky Jersey. Boom. Cash back. Even a last minute ice run can score you some cash back when you used your debit card. And yes, we said debit card with discover cash back debit. Everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look in sports. It's hard to predict who's taking the W, but you know, what's guaranteed to win discover cash back debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees, period? I'm telling you, this one is a game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Last hot button. Last hot button for you as I look over this, this game. Quinn Hughes, Luke Shen. They spent six minutes apart 
five on five today. Um, obviously the Canucks were chasing the game a bit, so they ended up getting split, but I want to, I want to tell you a, a stat here quick. I want to give you a split. So Luke Shen and Quinn Hughes spent 15 minutes together, 1452. In those minutes, the Canucks were outshot four to seven and they were outscored by one. Okay. Quinn Hughes also played, uh, two minutes and 19 seconds with Oliver Ekman Larson, a minute and 43 with Travis Dermott and a minute 40 with Tyler Myers and even at a shift late with Brad Hunt, 45 seconds in those minutes combined and granted some of it clearly came off of offensive zone draws, right? I mean, no, no defensive zone draws with any of those guys. Nonetheless, we're looking at a shot differential of eight to two, eight to two in minutes that Luke, uh, that Quinn Hughes played without Luke Shen tonight. Have we reached the ceiling and I and I hate to say this because of how much I how much regard I personally have for Luke Shen, but if we reach the ceiling on Luke Shen Quinn Hughes as an everyday top four pair, well, yeah, like I don't think any of us thought that that was a long term solution. It's just the best of a bad situation on a poorly constructed back end. Luke Shen has value on this team, but it should be on the third pair. And you know, quite frankly, I think Tyler Myers could have some value on this team as a third pair, but you can't pay that much for that. Um, but yeah, like th- this team has a bunch of defensemen not named Hughes, Quinn Hughes that are playing probably one pairing up than they should be. So at the end of the day, he was brought in to be a replacement to, I don't want to say Chris Tanev because that, that's a reach given how good Tanev has been the last few years and how good he was with Quinn Hughes, but you know, worked out a little bit for Travis Hammonick a year ago playing with Quinn Hughes. We knew that pairing was going to hit a ceiling and this is it too. Like good on, good on, uh, Luke Shen for resurrecting his career and his value here. You know, like there was a time when I thought Luke Shen was 38. Well, that was like two years ago. Just where his career was trending. Well, he's only 33 now. So he could stay in the league for a while. He would be a great value defenseman for the Canucks next year, but he shouldn't be a top pair guy playing, uh, you know, Quinn Hughes level minutes. That's ridiculous. I think we all know that, but who else are they going to put there? What choice do they have? No, they don't have, they don't have, them. sorry, you're right. They don't have a choice, but the extent of the rebuild, and I don't mean the team level rebuild. I don't mean the, I don't mean the, they got to lose for multiple years here. Although I find it increasingly tempting to suggest that what the, the, the anyway, whatever, this is the point. Don't start tank nation yet. This is the point for the off season. I, I think the, extent of the work that needs to be done to reconstruct this blue line. I don't even think we've appreciated it. I think it's like a four or five year project. And that's not to say that the Canucks can't be good before they've really built a proper, you know, contention quality blue line. But the have amount you seen, of, have you seen the amount of work it's going to take. Have you seen all you need to see from Travis Dermott? No, no. I mean, I like Travis Dermott. I think he's played well. Yeah, I think he's been pretty ordinary, but maybe my expectations were a little high because it came on that euphoric day when they got rid of Travis Hamannick's contract. He hasn't really, he hasn't played poorly, but I think he's just been kind of okay. But at the end of the day, he's making 1.5 million and he's still young and, you, you know, so it's not a bad deal. It's not a problem contract, but I don't know that he's necessarily a, uh, an answer on this top. Six. No, but they, they, they saw him as the third pair guy who, you know, maybe, maybe could have some upside once they got working with him. And and I don't hate that bet for the cost 
that it, you know, for the, the, at the cost of a third round pick, I think he adds more speed than most of the blue liners in the, on this team. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't hate that gamble at all to be totally are we gonna see? You. Are we going to see Jack Rathbone up here like now? Yeah, we should. It's over. It's over. So we should see him now and try to give him as much run as we can. He'll still be available for Abbotsford in the playoffs, but we need to see him now. Yeah, we need to see. They need to give him 10 games, even just so new management can decide if that's something that they need to, um, you know, just so the management can decide if they want to build around him in a more meaningful way. Like, what sort of shot do you want him to have next season? What type of competition? Do you want him to have to beat out to make the roster next season? Um, you know, how does it impact, you know, the other D that you sign, what you're willing to lose on waivers? Like, you do need to see him play 10 NHL games so that you can make that determination. And, and you need to see him play 12 to 14 minutes per game. Like, you can't just bury him. Yes, you cannot just bury him. I, I No, I, you need to see it. You need to see it. You need to see it now. I'm with you. I'd like to see Jack Rathbone in the lineup. If not for the first game against Vegas this weekend, then by the time they hit the road. Next and it's going to be harder because they've now all of a sudden got Burroughs available and you know that Bruce loves him and you've got Pullman available, which the organization is heavily invested in. So that's going to make it tougher if those guys are available this weekend. But for me, I want to see Jack Rathbone in the lineup. It's time. It is time. Yeah. No, I'm with you. They need, they need to bring him up. We need to see that. Um, I'd like to see the old Burroughs Rathbone pair again. I had a lot of time for that yeah, pair. Yeah. There were, yeah, there were things they did early in the year that I really liked. Because um, yeah. a year from now, he and Luke Shen could be a pretty good pair, and like a pretty good third pair. Totally. If, if you if you see enough in ten games now to say, okay, he belongs in the NHL next year. He'll give us a better skater who can move the puck and transition it better than what we currently have, because that's probably the biggest Achilles heel of this defense. They don't allow the forwards to move with any kind of speed. And if Rathbone shows you enough of that, and you pair him with Shen to welcome him into the league, I think that's a good role for, or a good, um, yeah, role for both guys. Yeah, I don't disagree. All right. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Let's open the floor. If you'd like to be invited up on stage, raise your hand. We'll get to as many folks as we can we currently only have two hands raised so if you'd like to participate in the discussion uh raise your hand and we will call people up from the audience in the order uh in which they raise their hands we're going to start with conrado p conrado p welcome to the stage thank you for joining the vancast live conrado can you hear me can you guys hear me we can indeed how are you sir i'm doing good how are you guys doing all right man we're happy to have you Uh, what do you want to talk about yeah, I, first of all, I just want to say thanks uh, for all the work and appreciate the stories that you cover for us. Um, Our pleasure. I wanted to, t- to touch upon the uh, points that you're bringing up, uh, Drancer post game, about how the Canucks didn't seem to, I don't know, not care, seemed is the right way to put it, but didn't seem fully engaged um, after like the shorthanded goal, like you guys were talking about. 
Um, and we've talked at length about how the team has like struggled to start on games on time and brought up the team's mental toughness and resiliency. Um, like if you're management, like how do you address that? Like when I look at it, it's like, is moving Miller seem counterintuitive to that since he's got that bit of red ass in him? Um, I know, the, <laughs> I know that cost of signing will is probably north of hurdle, but, um, or will a move of like moving Miller, like snap the team into attention and, you know, bring them, like make them realize that the, that they haven't been performing like since the bubble or whatever to, to, to just be, to be better in general. But uh, anyways, thanks for, uh, for putting this format together and look forward to, to hearing your thoughts. Cheers guys. Thanks, Conrado. It's an interesting question. I think the JT Miller personality dynamic is a really tough one to navigate. And, you know, I'd, I'd heard us like, you know, I think JT Miller, I think JT Miller is first, first and foremost, a really, really good player. I also think he's a bit of a warrior, right? I, I mean, I, I've, I've heard some stories of late that I hadn't heard at the time, but I like, I think he played a lot more hurt in the bubble than we realized. Um, and he played phenomenally. Uh, I love, I love a lot of his game. I love a lot of his personality. And I do think he'd be missed if he were to move on, if he were traded, if he were to leave as a free agent, which, which can't happen. This club can't afford to have him walk as UFA. So, you know, I think, I think navigating that is probably the toughest question that this organization is going to have to answer over the course of the next 12 months, 16 months. And yet I just don't see a route with how this team is constructed and with the commitment to Oliver Ekman Larson to sign a 30 year old JT Miller to a eight year deal and trust that you're going to get much out of it. And, you know, I thought we saw another every night we see a guy who reminds me of the risk that the Canucks would be taking on. And, you know, the player that I want to bring up this time remains an exceptional player, and I don't want to suggest otherwise, but Ryan O'Reilly tonight, how different did he look than he looked two years ago when he was 29 and was, you know, a perennial Selkie winner? He's still, he's still someone who wins every battle when you're close to him. He might be the strongest guy on his stick in the league, maybe outside of Louis Erickson. <laughs> and, you know, like he's got that Thomas Vanek, Louis Erickson game, except, except better on steroids. If, if you get within his radius, the puck is his. He is lifting your stick. You are not lifting his. He is getting it out of the zone if he needs to. He's incredible. But the speed of his game has fallen off significantly. And he's going to be a 50-point guy this year, despite being a, a, a fixture on PP1 for them, uh, despite logging just massive minutes. I mean, regularly over 20 minutes. He played 17-5-6 uh, f- tonight. And I don't know, like, did you see him as a particularly impactful piece tonight? Like, he looked, no, he flashes. He, looked, he flashes twice a game, and we have this memory he looked, of Ryan. He looked 31 to me. Yeah, well, look, we have this memory of Ryan O'Reilly from the playoffs two years ago, right? When it was just him and Bo Horvat going back and forth in that series. Interesting stat tonight that Patrick Johnson found uh, from Luke Korzak. This is tonight was the first time ever in the regular season that Ryan O'Reilly scored against the Canucks. 41 regular season games. He's had 16 assists in the previous 40 in his career. So he had some in that playoff series, no doubt. 
But in the regular season, hasn't scored a lot of goals and has had a reasonable number of assists. But like, can can you can you put that together when you remove the memory of him in that series two years ago? But look, here's the thing, right? I mean, and John Tavares, who struggled earlier, has now kind of turned a little bit, right? And his game has come back the last couple of weeks. Not not by the underlying numbers, though. That line is still a problem. For the Maple Leafs, like, but my point, my point is this. My point is this. Most teams, and Jim Benning was right when he said most teams have one bad contract. But if you wind up signing JT Miller to a long one, and look, I'm past the whole emotion edge, good good JT, bad JT. I think personality wise, the Canucks need him. Right. I think everybody understands who he is. They understand the good, bad, and, and otherwise of JT Miller. And I think the the locker room personality, all of that is a net positive for this team. However, the contract is the contract. And if you've got OEL, you can't have JT Miller. You can't have both contracts on your books in three years. You just can't do it. So unless you find a way to get rid of Oliver Ekman Larson, in my opinion, as much as I think JT Miller is going to be valuable, his contract would age better than OEL. It's a non-starter. I, I I just I just do not see how this team can commit significant money in term to another thirty year old when you go when you got by eight well I, and that's fine and there's a t- if you are a team that's going to win a cup in the first three years of that deal I don't think it's a bad gamble if you're the Canucks however. I think it's. I don't think it's a gamble that you can make. Like I just don't see it as a gamble yeah, yeah. you can afford to make. I think there's a real chance that you know it. Not not that it's Jeff Skinner, but that by year two you're like, oh boy, we would have been better off losing this for nothing. And that's not a spot you can afford to be in with a player of JT Miller's caliber at this stage of a team's building cycle. Like it's just. You need to look long-term with, with JT Miller, even though his absence would leave a smoldering emotional and skill level crater in the, in the center of this roster. Um, it's just too bad. But when they made the JT, here's, here's, here, let me, let me make one more point on JT Miller because this is sort of underscores what's so bizarre and annoying about where the Canucks are, right? Like as we watch this season slip away, Right. Here's what's important to remember about where we're at and why my tone has been so strident in criticizing the mistakes this franchise has made. When they traded a first round pick, you know, with with some protections for JT Miller at the draft in 2019, the goal was to accelerate the rebuild, but it also created a window. JT Miller's contract synced up perfectly with Bo Horvat. It gave you two years where you had this top six group built around, um, you know, those guys and you had Hughes and Pedersen on ELCs. So it gave you these, this two year window. In the first year, the Canucks exceeded expectations. They maybe they wouldn't have made the playoffs. Maybe they would have. We'll never know because of the pandemic, but they crushed in the playoffs. They seemed, they looked to the world like a team on the rise. And then they dropped down and became a bottom 10 team by spend. They ended up playing like seven guys who are out of the league in the in the lineup, you know, like, they, like it, not until the eve of training camp, the projected third pair was Brogan Rafferty and Ole Yolevi. No, stop. I, what stop. happened? I'm sorry. Like, that's what happened. 
It was like, oh boy, Jalen Chatfield, they're really excited about Jay. Like, come on. They 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 barely iced an NHL roster. And that did real damage. That did real damage to this team. This season, this season, they pushed more chips in in support of that window. Like, the worst part about this team when we argue about what they're doing or their building cycle, like, this is it. They're they're actually this is their window. They're in it right now. Right now, and they're 11th in the West. And so, you know, you have to keep that in mind. Like, the Boudreaux performance, the performance under Boudreaux has been fun and enjoyable. And it's been way better than what we saw in the first two months of the season. But you have to remember that, you know, you, you, can't, you can't give too much credit to a win-now team for having half a season doing what they were built to do. You know, like you have to actually do it. You have to have to actually accomplish something when, when you've, you know, over multiple years created a window that's only going to result in, you know, a one second round appearance. Like that's the early part of the window of the Pedersen Hughes era in Vancouver, one second round appearance and two misses and they're and they're both signed to non long term deals, right? The the Pedersen contract could be really complicated. We're talking about Besser's seven point five million dollar QO. We're only a year away from the Elias Pedersen eleven million dollar QO conversation, right? Like they have structured things to be unwieldy. This is a win now team that's not won, and and that's what sort of frustrates me about this conversation and why I've been calling for dramatic action. Because it's you're you're actually at the end, you're at the end of a window that didn't do anything, that didn't pay off, and and there were years of losing to set this up. There was years of Chapu and Magna to set this up, and it just hasn't been that good. In fact, it hasn't been good at all. And that's that's like my underlying frustration. Maybe I haven't made that point clearly enough, but like this is a team we're watching in their window now. And so the JT Miller question is, are you going to fight to extend that window when, when it hasn't accomplished what you needed it to? Or are you going to more fundamentally redesign this team and try to salvage something out of the Demko Hughes Pedersen core? Cause you've now kind of set up a second wave window. It's just that you didn't do anything in your first. You didn't do anything in your first. And for me, you have to accept that, say we weren't even close. And, and you have to, and you have to go. And the goal is now a quick two or three year restock so that you don't waste the Demco contract. So that you don't waste the possibility, even the probability that you have a top five NHL starter signed for five million and you've got to make hay on that window. Um, and for me, writing off next season, like that's a no brainer. You kind of have to do it. If, you, if your goal is to restock sufficiently to take advantage of it and, and, you know, item A on this list, like if you're trying to execute this plan, item A is maximizing your return for JT Miller. All right, let's, uh, sorry, that was a completely out of nowhere rant. Uh, uh, a rant specialty, as it were. Thanks for bearing with me, everybody. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, not 
that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokers Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick it to Ella L. Ella, welcome to the stage. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Hi, guys. So I wanted to ask about your thoughts on Pedersen's rotating set of line mates this season. Um, despite that, it's still looking like he can turn his like personal season around. So what are your thoughts on his line mates this season? Thanks. Ella, thanks for the question. Thanks for joining us. The Pedersen line mate question is interesting because, you know, Pedersen Miller, I thought worked for a while. And then they really just haven't played with one another at all this season. Um, it doesn't feel like, like, I feel like he's had decent chemistry with Connor Garland. But watching them play together, I feel like they don't like playing with each other. <laughs> like, I feel like there's something a little off there chemistry wise, even though, you know, it's, it's a combo that I actually quite like. Um, yeah, but both, they both want the puck a lot. Yeah, I know. The puck a lot to function, which is why a guy like Garland, to me, works better with, with Horvat because he doesn't need the puck nearly as much. And, I, you know, I'm curious to see how long Horvat's out here. For the sickness, he should be back by the weekend, you would think, especially if it's not COVID. But eventually, you also got to get PD back to the middle, right? Like, they got, yeah. Clearly, his wrist is fine now. Right, we we were talking a week ago that look they may need to shut this guy down or a week and a half ago, and it looked like it was really affecting him. His wrist is fine; he's going to keep playing. They need to move him back to the middle. Um, yeah, you know, and you t- you had talked about pairs previously, and when Horvat gets back, that might be the simplest way to do it, and it's also the simplest way to integrate some younger players in if you decide to go that way. Right, like it would help Lockwood to play with one of those pairs instead of being buried in the fourth line, even though he probably projects as a bottom six forward anyway, long-term. Like I'd like to see a little bit of that and and just get Petey back where he belongs. Yeah. And you know what? I don't know that Pedersen and Garland have worked that well together. Actually, I thought their underlying data was, was better than it is. It's actually, they're probably better apart than they have been together this season. Generally these last two months, Pedersen has played well with whoever you put him with. There was a window sure. there where he was the third line center with Pod Colson and Hoaglander, and he brought the two of them along. He got the best out of them. Yeah, Hoaglander didn't produce in big numbers, and you know we didn't expect Pod Colson to. I mean, I like Pod Colson's rookie season, but I think he brought the best out in them. And I think you know he's been fine with everybody not named Garland. Yeah, he has. I mean, I still think Pedersen Besser is should be your first choice always. For and sure. sure. Interesting, interesting to note as I peruse their data. Um, when they've been on the ice together this season, Pedersen and Besser have a 4.29 on ice shooting percentage. These are two above <laughs> average finishers, like two guys who are, you know, as the sample expands, for sure going to be at nine and a half. 10%. That's an incredible number, though. And that There's, says a lot about this team's state. This season, totally. When those two have been together, they just haven't been able to finish, even though they may have generated plenty. But also, that's going to bounce back. You know, like I look, I look at the fifty-five percent Corsi four. You know, I I look at they've been outscored seven to eight, but that's largely because of the shooting percentage. Uh, You know, I look at a fifty-one percent expected goals together. I mean, those guys. That's my that's my first choice. Like. For me, you've got Pedersen, you've got Besser. 
Uh, I would go with that for years and years, but I, I know that Besser's status is a little more interesting than that going into this offseason. For me, that's the guy he should play with. I've liked him with Bud Golston. I've liked him with Hoaglander. I still think him and JT Miller, like, I'd love to see the lotto line again. I don't know why we don't see it. Uh, and you know what? Because they they don't have, they're, they're just not playing in both at center. No, sorry, they're, just, they're playing JT at center, and that's the reason you don't see Yeah, it. but but what would the lotto line look like with JT on the middle and Pedersen on the wing? Well, I mean, Pedersen, whether if Pedersen's playing on the wing, he's really playing center. You know what I mean? Like, he's yeah, that's, yeah. that's who he kind of is. Um, you know, I don't love Pedersen with Bo, to be totally honest with you. I don't know that that's the best fit. I like the idea of Pedersen with a playmaker. It's why I thought that the Pedersen-Garland thing would make sense. Uh, you've got your best sort of primary playmaker, who's a right-handed guy, playing with you know your best finisher as a lefty. I thought that would make sense, but I really think Besser, Besser, Pedersen, you know, and honestly, I'd love to see Pod Colson, Pedersen, Besser. I'd love to see them, like, especially with the way Pod Colson's played of late, I'd love to see them do that. And and the instructions to Pod Colson are in the first game you play with these guys, you got to run a guy through the wall. You know, I don't care if you take a penalty, whatever. Run a guy through the wall so that the other team doesn't want to have the puck when you're out there. <laughs> They're happy for you to have it because at least you're not chasing them around. That's That's what you got to do. And if he did that and then and then was just kind of a heavy press with those guys, he could create some space and then he'd have the skill set to help them finish it off. Um, hard for a young player to kind of understand that game within a game, but that's what I want to see. That's what I, I, I at least want to see that once over the balance of the season. It would make me happy. All right, let's get back to the calls. I think uh, Rohan K is up next. All right. Rohan, how are you? Good. How are you guys doing? Doing well, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. What do you want to talk about? Uh, yeah. So uh, I have a couple questions. Uh, for the second one, I was going to say you could pick between a long term versus a short term question. Okay. Um. So for the first one, uh, for hockey ops, how much restructuring do you think we see uh, in below like our recent upper management hires after season's end? Like I remember. A couple of months ago, seeing stuff about how Rutherford was targeting someone who's working with the Canadian women's team. Like, is that still a thing at a higher level as well? And then for the second one, uh, it's your call on the longer versus the short term question. All right, let's uh, get to that. Thank you so much for your questions, Rohan. Um, I haven't heard a lot about like, I think the main thing that we're going to see is the restructuring of certainly the amateur scouting department. I'm not so sure we're going to see changes as dramatic as we maybe thought in the, on, on the pro side. I still think we'll see a few things shift about, but like, you know, the director of pro scouting and, and is Brett Henning, uh, Lauren Henning's son. And I, I was wondering what would happen when they brought in Derek Clancy as assistant general manager, considering Derek Clancy is a pro guy, but Henning was at the, like in the club's war room on trade deadline day. And that to me, like I read that as a, as like a, an endorsement, you know, if you're a director level employee, who's being phased out, you you tend to be phased out pretty significantly, pretty quickly. Um, so in the event that, there aren't significant changes coming. And, and, you know, I heard that, um, I heard that Chapman, Brian Chapman is a Massachusetts based pro scout for the Canucks. 
He uh, he was at the Northeastern game, which was McDonough's final game of the season uh, last weekend. So that's a pretty significant assignment. You know, like a key guy we're trying to sign. You're the organization's rep at that game. Like, that's a pretty significant assignment. That would, again, suggest to me that, you know, the way that the pro scouting department is functioning or was functioning toward the end of the Benning era will, you know, continue to some extent, maybe be further supported with additional hires, but maybe we're not going to see the types of significant changes that we might have expected on the pro side. Now the amateur side is a little bit of a different matter. And I'm really curious to see sort of what that looks like because the amateur side is such a hodgepodge of like some holdover Judd Brackett guys. You know, you've got, you've got like Vincent Montalbano who's Massachusetts based, but is Vancouver's QMJHL scout doesn't make a ton of sense. He kind of got displaced when the organization hired Troy Ward, who's sort of more of a Weissbrod guy, but guys like Phil Golding and Montalbano, uh-huh. who was hired away actually from the Blues, uh, Canucks Blues game, the the Montalbano Bowl, if, if, if you really want to go inside baseball here. Um, so you've got some Judd holdovers. You've got, you know, Brandon Benning and Troy Ward, who are sort of Jim and John type um um, guys, and then you've got the old guard guys like Delorme, um, Hampson, um, Gradine, guys who've been around for a long time. Um, I would expect signif- more significant changes on the amateur side. Um, you know, probably not a shift in director. I, I think the organization uh, remains high on Todd Harvey. Um, so, you know, I'm not expecting a significant shift there necessarily, but. Um, I do think we'll see significant changes on the amateur side at some point. I don't know exactly what it will look like, but that's been the local scuttlebutt. The hockey circles in Vancouver have been waiting to see the changes coming on the amateur side for a long time. And, and hey, look, maybe maybe it's the pro side, too. Uh, I don't know that I have a very clear line of sight into it. I just kind of have a sense of the relationships and dynamics and and some assignments because I ask a lot of people around the league like, where the Canucks there, who was there, <laughs> you know, when I, whenever I talk to scouts who are at a game of some relevance, who was there, which Canuck was there. Oh, interesting. Da, da, da. I just kind of note it down. Um, the pro side looks to me to be functioning more or less normally. Uh, I don't know what's to come on the amateur side, but I would expect changes. I, I hope that answers your question. Um, this is super inside baseball, but that's, uh, that's what I figured. Uh, I figured you were looking for um, far on anything. No, man, I leave all that inside baseball stuff to you as far as what the, what the front office on both ends is going to look like. I mean, obviously, we know a lot of changes are being made, but I, I can't sit here and break down the quality of, of said scout on either side of it, you know, for other, uh, other than what they've done to this point. But uh, to be clearly, clear, clearly to be clear, neither can I. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Arthur A., let's go. Arthur, welcome to the stage. Good, sir. How are you guys? We're doing well. Thanks for joining us. Okay, uh, just a couple questions. Uh, I was wondering what you guys are thinking who Jack Rathbone will replace if he does get into the lineup. And my second question is totally unrelated to hockey. If the Mariners and Blue Jays met in the playoffs, who do you think would win? Oh, man. Oh, boy. That, 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 sec- that second one is just a, uh, you know, I, I can't even begin to start. So, Drancer, you go ahead. We'll have to debate this as the regular season plays out. Uh, because I still owe you seafood, and and I have asked to pay back. You just haven't been available. You're what too debate? Big for me. What debate? 
Yeah, there's exactly. No debate. So, there's so, no so, debate. We'll, so we'll wait. We'll wait. We'll wait. One team. Until the Blue Jays perpetually underachieve. One team. And uh, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Blue Jays, Blue Jays have the best lineup in baseball, man. One right. team. We'll, let's, we'll let's, find let's, out. let's see we'll what Vegas. Let's, 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 talk, let's, talk, let's see let's what Vegas. Let's see what Vegas. Yeah, let's see what Vegas. Night after night. That's good. Let's see what Let's see what Vegas. I'm looking forward to hearing you telling me every seventh inning how you pulled out of that bet to minimize your losses. So that'll be good. But look, let's talk. Talk a little bit about Jack Rathbone. Uh, 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 one sec. I just want to make one quick point, and then we'll move on. I know you and I love to talk over each other when it comes to the the manufactured Blue Jays Mariners rivalry, but I just want to note one thing: the bet, the betting odds contend that Vegas is the favorite to win the best division in baseball. His, you know, year after year, the AL East favorite ahead of the Yankees and the Red Sox. The Mariners are favored to finish. Behind, not just the Houston Astros, who are like clear favorites in the AL West, but also the the uh, Los Angeles Angels. Vegas thinks they're the third best team in the AL West. So, Excellent. and they probably did last year. And they got right down to the final week, and we're relevant, and right there with the Blue Jays, pretty much equal. So let's see what happens. As like we'll revisit now, this at some point in the summer. Yeah, at this I mean, point, you'll be giving me all sorts of reasoning for why the Mariners are like looking really good and the Blue Jays have fallen flat on their face because that is going to happen because that's oh, generally what happens. The, so the at that part. point, I'm looking forward to all the inside baseball reasoning, and uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll go there. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll we'll get to it because it's 162 games, and my care meter for baseball is really low till it matters. <laughs> so let's let's talk about Jack Rathbone. Well, sorry, sorry, He's I want to invite the third pair on the left side. I want to invite another. I want to invite Jacob W up to the stage. Another, right. another Jack, Jack up. Um, <laughs> but uh, but Jack, Jake, Jacob's had some issues. He's been in and out of the chat, and I wanted to get to him because it, it looks like um, it looks like we booted him. He would have been first in line, so he raised his hand again. I told him to in the chat, and I want to get to his question right away. Welcome to the stage. I hope we have you. Guys, it's it's completely fine. It's probably because Ryan Henderson's running this thing. Maybe I don't know. But, uh, yeah, that's good, good point. Honest, good point. <laughs> honestly, I love you guys, man. Uh, you guys keep me hockey entertained for so long. Farhan, my my father, he actually just left the house, but he he, he says he remembered you from what they the monster thing. I God, I forgot what he said, but uh, man, maybe from back in the day in the radio. I think maybe you're a producer well, back then. His father sure. remembered me, Drance, or his father. That, that, must, old. that must make oh. you feel young. As for my question, as for my question, you know, going into the off season, it, it's 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 actually kind of wild because it's maybe the first time in an off season where I can't even remotely predict. What is going to happen? Because I'm based off all the kind of interviews that Jim Rutherford has has had and Patrick Alvin has had. It was pretty clear as day that, you know, they're they're going to make changes. Now, you go into this offseason. What can those changes really be? Because everybody's saying, you know, trade Bresser and trade Miller and. But at the end of the day, other teams are saying the same thing, right? And, you know, if you're trying to trade a Besser with a qualifying offer, you know, other teams know about it too. So how do you make that deal actually happen? Is it a sign-and-trade? Who knows? Anyways, I'm just curious what you guys think. What exactly, in a short way, I guess, I guess you guys would go for another hour. What do you think the Canucks are going to do this year? Thanks. 
It is a fascinating question and one that, you know, I think we'll be debating and discussing and parsing and analyzing for months. The Besser QO situation in particular, uh, full breakdown of what it looks like. So, you know, there's a qualifying offer deadline, right? Uh, before the week, sorry, actually a week before the qualifying offer deadline, there's a deadline for a team to elect to take a player to arbitration. That's team elected arbitration. Uh, sometimes shorthand referred to as cutback arbitration because the team can actually seek to reduce a player's compensation by using that device. Uh, thereafter, there's a qualifying offer deadline, at which point the club has to tender Brock Besser a qualifying offer, which is the equivalent of a one-year contract worth $7.5 million. Um, then Besser has you know, a couple of weeks to accept it, and he has his own opportunity to file for player-elected arbitration. If you the team files for arbitration, that would probably poison the well in terms of a long-term relationship. But you would expect the player to come, to file for team elected or uh, player elected arbitration. And in fact, from the team's perspective, that would be great news. What the team probably is most worried about is they tender him a qualifying offer and he signs it and faxes it back immediately. So, you know, that's the dynamic that you have to navigate. You have to maintain so long as you get to the qualifying offer deadline with Besser unsigned or, or not signed yet to an extension, you have to maintain a $7.5 million in your budget for Brock Besser because if you plan to retain his rights and not make him an unrestricted free agent, you know, there is a very real chance that he says, hey, I'm not going to make $7.5 million any other way. Boom, qualifying offer signed. I'm doing another $7.5 million one next year. Let's go. And so, you know, how does the team navigate it? Maybe, I mean, first of all, you got, you got to try and get him signed to an extension before you get to the qualifying offer deadline. You got to use the uh, the fact that you have the team elected deadline and then the arbitration deadline as pressure points to try and get something that's a little more team friendly done. If you can get something that's a little more team friendly done, um, that's probably the best thing for Besser's trade value, particularly if he plays better next season than he did at the start of this year, especially. Uh, if you get down to the wire, though, you might reach a point where you decide not to qualify him, where you make him an unrestricted free agent. That would be a tremendous amount of value lost. And, of course, you can also trade him at any point once the season ends, right? Like, and Actually, you can trade him right now, but he wouldn't be eligible to play in the playoffs, and it, you know that would never happen. But you could also trade him before those before those sort of pressure points uh, come to bear. I would expect the team to work pretty hard on doing precisely that. Qualifying offer deadline, by the way, tends to come. I believe it's after the draft this year, but I'd have to check my critical dates calendar. Um, but I believe it's after the draft, just before free agency. Um, it's a really tough decision. It's a really complicated situation. And there's no question. It significantly restrains Besser's trade value. Yeah, I couldn't imagine what it would look like under the previous arbitration system where they would actually go in there and the team would really like talk down the player, right? Um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure Besser necessarily gets over something like that. And I know that again, the process is a little different now. And you know, you talk about the team really not being in a position to go with the team elected arbitration route if they want to make this a, a long-term relationship, but. You, you can't go down this road repeatedly at $7.5 million. He's just not good enough. Like you need, you need to find a way to get that number down and you need to get some clarity now. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you, yeah, you, your best bet is to get an extension done prior to that or a trade done prior to that deadline. Um, one of the two. You know, ideally, you work on two fronts. You have trades ready to go if you can't get a number you like, and you have, and you work to try and get a number you like. My view of it is that the organization would be best off finding uh, a contract number that works for them on a three or four or five year deal. Um, you know, that, that would be the best outcome in my opinion, but it's going to be a very complicated one because of the leverage uh, designed into Besser's third contract. F- friend of the show always asks great questions. Sean W. Welcome to the stage. What do you want to talk about my friend? Hey gentlemen, thank you for uh, having me on. Um, I have two, two questions. So, um, the first one is about a story that I don't necessarily feel like is getting a lot of play, probably because of the playoff chase and everything. But I find it bizarre that we don't know if Boudreaux is going to be the coach of the Canucks next year. And along with that, like the Alvin, very soft, non-committal comments after the deadline about the coaching situation. Like, I might be reading too much into it, but it kind of feels like this is despite the push headed in like a direction where we could see coaching change. I don't know if you guys totally disagree or if you think the way that they're handling the situation is normal, but the fact that we haven't got like a vote of confidence or like it sounds, it sounds like it's like a two year contract, but there was a, like a one year option at the tail end of it. And like, like it would have been totally reasonable in my opinion for them to just have picked up the option at this point and said like, yeah, no, like, yeah, the Boudreaux's going to be like, he's proved his worth and, and he's going to be, the, it, it seems bizarre to me that we don't know if he's going to be the coach next year. And it makes me wonder like, hmm, maybe, maybe, maybe he wasn't their choice. Maybe, maybe they have issues with the way he is deploying the, the team, despite sort of them racking up wins with the highest save percentage five on five in, in the league. So that's, that's for, first question. Uh, this, the second one, which I'll, I'll be more succinct, is uh, is is, a, is about JT. And, and I think, I mean, my opinion, I, I think it's an absolute no-brainer layup that you you need to we- weaponize that asset and and create the cap space and and bring back a haul for for Miller this offseason. But I guess if if I could ask you guys to speculate, do you think there are people in the front office that want to park the Brinks truck? for him or, or view him as like literally like irreplaceable or do you think that they have a pretty sober view of the situation thanks john w those are two massive questions and despite your uh, self-deprecation i thought the boudreaux question was framed with appropriate concision because it is bizarre it would be an, it would be so bizarre for this organization to not bring boudreaux back yeah, I would yeah. agree. Uh, you know, I think he's earned the opportunity to come back. The contract is set up where he's going to have to get some sort of a uh, an extension this offseason. It's a two-year deal, right? So do they want to go down that road? How vital is it to him at this stage in his career that he get that? You know, I don't think he walks away from it at any point. I think he wants to coach, and I think he's, you know, comfortable with this group of guys. So I, I don't see a scenario where he's not back. It's just a case of what any potential – extension because i mean essentially this was his platform year, right on that two-year deal so you know i what do you think do you think do you think they go with more than another year uh, as an extension at the end of this or do you think he's earned more would demand more oh i, I mean i i think i think we got to get to is he back at all first and w- so what would give you pause i mean you just said that you think he's going to come back sorry i mean i think it would be bizarre for him not to but sure. this is the vancouver canucks well, you yeah, know, yeah. Sean, Sean W. brought up 
the tepid endorsement from Alvin on the radio after the deadline. And it was very tepid. It was. was. And also, you have heard this management group discuss issues with player um, practice habits, structure, uh, questioning the structure that the team plays with. Um, You know, there's certainly been behind-the-scenes efforts to change the culture in terms of overall professional accountability, everything from diet to treatment of support staff. Um, You know, is Boudreaux really Alvin and Rutherford's guy? He was hired first of the three. But yeah, but didn't didn't Rutherford, who hadn't been hired yet, essentially sign off on that hiring? Yeah, uh, he. that is the story. That is the story that we've been told. And yet, here's what we know, right? Like, let's just go through what we know. So we know that American Thanksgiving weekend, Francesco Aquilini goes to visit Rutherford and Raleigh, right? We know that that happens, and we know the timeline that it happens. It happens shortly after that loss in Columbus, uh, following the first you know, loss in Pittsburgh, the J when JT Miller wouldn't say whether or not everyone was buying in. Right. So you have that, those two brutal losses, Francesco Aquilini goes to visit Jim Rutherford. He's talking to Jim Rutherford about becoming GM. And yet when the fan throws the Jersey on the ice during that penguins game and Brian Dumoulin throws it back over the, uh, over the glass and the organization decides that the situation is truly untenable. They, press Rutherford to say yes and join them as, as president of hockey operations. Rutherford cannot do it because he's under the weather, non COVID illness. Um, at which point they say, okay, well, what about Boudreaux? Like we, we want to fly out and fly Boudreaux to Vancouver. Are you okay with him? The, apparently the answer is yes. And three days later, Boudreaux is hired, but in the interim, the organization sets up like a, you know, a, a, a fail safe, like in the event that Rutherford hadn't come, they were prepared to leg through the season with Stan Smeal as the figurehead overseeing a hockey operations department where an awful lot would have been run by Chris Gear and John Wall. And once Rutherford is in hand that like, that's the reason that the timing was so weird with the additional layer of front office firings. Like they literally needed executors in the event that Rutherford hadn't said yes. So anyway, Rutherford comes in. How convinced are we, given the fact that, like, pretty clearly ownership was in scramble mode to change direction of this franchise in a hurry? Like, having waited too long, they they kind of ended up scrambling for a week. You could see the seams ever present. How tied to the head coach is the new management group? I think that's an open question, Farhan. And and I'd add, what's the dynamic vis-a-vis the owner ownership group who must be thrilled with the market's response to the new coach? Um, you know, I think it's a fascinating, fascinating question. Yeah, it's yeah. bizarre to me to think he won't be back. I mean, he's earned it. I think the market, as you say, would lose their collective minds. I'm not sure how the players would react to it. I think they... Uh, believe in him. I think he, he's earned their respect. I think they're, you know, whenever you make a coaching change, generally it becomes the anti what you had before, right? And Boudreaux is very much the anti Travis Green, just in terms of style and demeanor and priorities, you know, on the ice. So 
you know, I think he works for them. But then at the same time, who knows what the overall level of change is going to be within the organization as far as the, the, the active roster is concerned next year, right? So there are going to be some players that, you know, really, really, really want to make sure that Boudreaux's back. And there might be some others that aren't, you know, as, as comfortable either, or it doesn't matter to them as much either way. And they may not be here, right? So, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the key guys, right? What's Horvat want to do? What's Pedersen want to do? What's Quinn Hughes want to do? And what's Thatcher Demko want to do, right? Like their, their opinions of any of the players will probably matter the most, but, I just don't see a scenario where he's not back. I think he's earned the opportunity. And I think what it's going to come down to is I just don't think they're going to want to extend him for more than a year. Right. I think they'll, they'll just want to keep as many options as they can open and have as little risk as they can. And then Boudreaux might just say, yeah, I'm okay with that. I don't want that. Yeah. I mean, you have to extend him for a year. You have to, you, you can't, you can't keep going into seasons with lame duck middle management, you know, like you cannot keep doing it. It kills you. It kills. Yeah, but that's, my, that's that's my point. Is he may want more than that. Well, he may uh, want more than, and they should, and they should be willing to do that if uh, if that's what it takes to extend him and avoid him working through a lame duck situation. In my view, uh, the the fact is is that there's definitely something to monitor here. The industry thinks it's an interesting situation. Um, this would, coach, be industry, like, this would be industry sources, right? Yeah, this would be like, this would be like, you know, there's people in the coaching fraternity that are certainly wondering how this situation is going to play out. Um, you know, there are open questions about how tied new management is to the coach. And, you know, I, I think those questions have been fueled in part by management's own commentary uh, about this team. Um, so yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see how it plays out. I'm not saying there's fire there and I'm not even saying there's smoke so much as when you drive through, there's like a elevated risk of fire sign <laughs> uh, present in the national park. And, and look, this is such a, a sensitive topic in this province. Yeah. This is such a bizarre organization. You can't really, um, you can't really write it on fire ban says Sean W quite rightly. Uh, Sean W's other question was about, um, Oh my goodness. What was it about? There was a second question that was more concise there. Farhan, was it about JT? Uh, yeah, I think he asked the question is whether or not there were, there was a number of people in the organization that just are you oh. know, desperate to bring him back. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely, I think there's definitely some of that, but I also think there's a pretty wide eyed uh, appreciation of the risk um, of the risk there. Uh, they love the player. Make no mistake. The organization loves the player. Um, there are some really big fans within the front office. And I think there's also, you know, a, a pretty s- mature understanding of the risk inherent based on his age and based on the fact that his demands are likely to be massive. So uh, and then I also saw Ella in the chat wonder uh, if we'd heard anything about JT Miller's willingness to stay in Vancouver. All I can say is that, you know, any reports that you heard from months ago about JT Miller not wanting to play in Canada or anything like that, that stuff's overcooked. And, and as far as I understand it, not true. So, um, you know, show me the money, baby. Show me the money. Yeah, exactly. Right. So long as, um, so long as he gets the, was it Rod Tidwell? Was that the name of the uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. Character? I I know you know, cause it's a classic football scene. Um, (laughs) but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I think if the offer is right, um, yeah, yeah, he's not taking less to stay. He's not taking less to stay. 
it's a pretty essential contract for him. Yeah, there, there's no hometown discount here. The 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 or like the team's simply not good enough to for him to want to take a hometown discount. I, I don't think it. it's going to cost them more, but certainly, uh, yeah, he, they're going to have to pay market value to get him, and that's going to be like eight times eight and a half, and that's I wouldn't do it. And I think he's a great player for this organization, and I still Me wouldn't too. do that. Agreed. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Uh, let's go to Tarek, uh, Tarek U. I almost said W, but it's only a single U. Tarek U, how are you, sir? Good. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. Thanks for joining us. I just wanted to bring it back to the talk about Besser and... I'll just preface this by saying I'm a huge fan of Brock Besser. I actually wearing a Besser jersey right now on my way back from the game. But I was reminded tonight, and not in a game where Besser played particularly bad. I actually thought he was pretty good. But as he uh, received that puck on the odd man rush late in the third with a chance to tie it, puts it right in the goalie's bread basket. I just, I was reminded of a thought I've been having a lot this year, which is, can we be honest? that the Besser we're seeing right now is not the Besser from his rookie year. I remember him staring down a set carry price and going bar down, looking like Ovechkin on the left flank. And I'm not saying, I'm not talking about the underlying numbers, and I'm not even saying Besser is not a serviceable player. He's a great player. But can we just be honest about the Besser we saw then is not the same as the one now, and what are the consequences of that? It's an interesting thought for sure, Tarek. I mean, I, for me, for me, I think Besser's two-way game, his playmaking, his strength along the wall is better than it was in his rookie season. But he certainly has never. He certainly, he certainly had an elevated shooting percentage in his rookie season that he kind of hasn't really matched now for, you know, almost the last seventy games of his career. Um, he's dealt with some really bad injury luck both last season and this season. So I don't think we've seen the best of him, of this version of a more mature Besser. I still like the player a lot. I still see him as a bona fide top line right wing player. I think he's a guy who needs to play on the half wall in the power play. And if he does can be a 30 goal scorer and a 65 point, 70 point guy in the right situation, with the way that this organization uses JT Miller, I, I'm, I'm not sure this is the team that that's going to put him there. And so 
you're kind of left with a lot of question marks about usage and, and contract structure as a result. But I still believe that Besser is very, very good. A top-line caliber right wing. My, my comp's always been, I see him as like right-handed Thomas Tatar. <laughs> and Thomas Tatar has had a very, very good career. Like he's been an excellent player for a very long time. And I think there's real value to keeping a player whose sort of floor is that high um, and who has upside beyond that. But I do think you need to be very careful about managing the cap hit on a player like that because at the end of the day, Thomas Tatar is not a star player. He's like a genuine, bona fide, really good, you know, top six. I see Besser as being slightly better. I see him as a top line guy. But, you know, I, I do think you have to be careful about where his contract comes in because I do think that there's a chance that Besser is, you know, best suited to being the fourth or fifth best winger on a potential cup team as opposed to the you know, best one, um, you know, and, and I want to just note that there's no contradiction in what I said, a top line caliber player for me means that, you know, there are, um, you know, 96 top line caliber players in the NHL. Right. But that doesn't mean that a cup winner has the 95th best <laughs> top line caliber player on their top line. Like, you know, the, the, Tampa Bay Lightning might have seven of those guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Tom, look, look, Thomas Tatar is on a two-year contract that pays him four point five per. If right. you gave me that with Brock Besser, you said if you give me a five million dollar a year player for Brock Besser, sign me up. But this contract is going to make the discounted version of Brock Besser somewhere around six point five, and that he's not good enough. Like you're talking about a guy that at his high end could be a 30 goal scorer and a 65 point player. Like he's going to play on the half wall next year because JT Miller's not going to be here or he won't be here at the end of the year after the trade deadline, right? Like one way or the other, you know, we, we all understand what that contract's going to look like and we have enough faith in management to understand they're not going to sign him to that kind of contract, right? So ma maximize asset value. For me, do it in the summer. Don't wait till the deadline. So you're, Players are at least in the right roles going into this season, in my opinion, if it's doable and if the right offer is there. But like Brock Besser is a $5 million player, and he's going to be overpaid based on how badly Jim Benning screwed up the last contract. And that's a problem for this team, too. Yeah, the structure of that deal is is not good. Now, one thing to note, though, is that on, yeah, I mean, on Thomas Tatar's third contract, he made 5.3 over four years. Um, you know, he made I'll five point five here. But in a world six point five here. But in a world where the salary cap was seventy five million, like the equivalent is about six million today, uh, versus an eighty two point five million dollar cap. Right. Yeah, so I, I just I see limitations there. I see every year we talk about injuries with Brock Besser. Uh, you know. Every year there are extended, extended gold droughts with Brock Besser. He's, he hasn't taken a step and he's had a lot of years to take it, right? Like, you know, from that rookie year, he's four years deep now. I know injuries have hurt him, but like that's a double edged sword using that as a, as an excuse for why the player hasn't taken the next step because that is part of the narrative. Yeah. He's I mean, my, too often. My, my ideal outcome for Besser, if I'm the Canucks, is you do a backloaded, like, four or five-year, $6.5 million contract. The salary starts at 7.5 so that he doesn't take a haircut on the QO, so that you get a slightly more team-friendly um, uh, slightly more team friendly cap hit. 
And in a world where you're making other changes, you put him back on the half wall. He plays with Pedersen for a full season and you see what you've got. And then you can still deal him and you'll probably have rebuilt his value a bit um, 12 months from now. Partly I'm saying that because I do really think of the player. 6.5. Yeah, I mean, 6.5 is not – do you think 6.5 is outrageous? It's not outrageous, but it's high for a player that just hasn't delivered those types of numbers. Um, I mean, I suppose that's true, but 6.5. You, you do it on potential. You do it on what you think no, it could be. No, but it's also just, it's also just kind of like market. Like at this point, at this it's point, where you're gonna ha- it's where you're going to have to settle because of his QO. No, but also at this point, we're looking at a league where a lot of guys make that amount. I mean, if we're going off of cap hit, you know, 6.5 makes you the 57th highest paid forward in the NHL. So, I mean, you know, like 6.5, yeah, it's more, th- it's, like, it's more than Nathan McKinnon makes, but, uh, you know, it's in and around Alex Dabrinkit, although that's an expiring deal, he'll be going up higher. Like, there's a lot of guys that are going to be higher than that very, very shortly. Um, You know, uh, Philip Forsberg's going to crush that. Philip Forsberg's like a six million dollar player, right? Like by the time when you get to six million, you're talking about seventy seven forwards in the NHL making that amount. Um, you know, I think he's probably in that group. Like, I don't think he's far off of that group anyway. Yeah, you should like you put him in that group. Now he's a bona fide top line player. Maybe that's what he is on the Vancouver Canucks. But as you said, on a good team, he's your third or fourth best forward. Oh, I, I mean, he might be your fourth or fifth on on a cup team. I think. Oh, sorry, sorry winner. I mean, not even forward. Yeah, I, on, on, yeah, on um, on a cup team, he might be even. You know, I think he's your. He, yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't know that he's like a top line driver. Put it that way, on a team that's going to win the cup, right? And that's a very tough spot to be, without question. If you're uh, yeah, yeah. if you're the Canucks trying to navigate this, I'm just trying to I'm just trying to figure out like, you know, if we like if we go back three seasons, for example, right, and we sort of look through, you know, oh man, <laughs> would you I'm take Brock to- Besser? Would you take Brock Besser at six point five? Or would you take Connor Garland at 4.95 in an elevated role? Because if he got power play time, he'd put up exactly the same numbers Brock Besser's putting up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, look, put it, put it this way. Brock Besser over the past um, over the past three seasons. So this doesn't even include some of the best flow years, right? Uh, over the past three seasons has 58 goals, okay? That's 61st in the NHL. Uh, one behind Zach Hyman, who just signed as the UFA at six million for eight, right? Um, you know, Thomas Tomash Hurdle comes in at fifty three. He's got sixty one goals. Like that's three more than Besser. Granted, he's played a, a few fewer games. Uh, and you know, in and around this area is guys like Nazem Kadri, who's going to sign for like seven, seven and a half, eight million this off season. Uh, it's more than Evgeny Dadanov, who signed for five million in Ottawa times three. Um, you know, there's a lot of guys up here who get paid. Matt Duchesne, James Van Riemsdyk, seven million a year. You know, Jared McCann's up there at fifty-two. He just signed for a huge deal. Like, 
six six five is not outrageous considering Besser's production and comparables, in my view. Um, we have one more person with their hand up. This will be our last caller, and then we'll and then we'll call it a night for the live vancast. This is from Bob C. Bob C, welcome to the stage. Bob C, you there? Bob C, going once, going twice. All right, nothing from Bob C. Um, I think that'll do it then. Shall we? Uh, shall we call it, Farhan? Let's call it a night. Drancery is going on vacation. He's going to Palm Desert. I'm going on vacation. I'm going to. I, so, I wanna. I wanna talk to the VIPs about this a little bit. So, I'm going on vacation. And I'm taking a full week off next week, uh, entirely. Uh, this was pre-planned. In fact, I scheduled it for after the deadline and after this big long road trip months ago, thinking that you know the games were unlikely to matter a ton and that I really wanted to be <laughs> dialed in for the off season. Well, no, but you know, when I booked the trip in, in early February, that seemed like a reasonable bet. And oh, then totally. I got, and then I got pretty nervous <laughs> for a little bit and now I'm feeling vindicated. <laughs> no, I'm not feeling vindicated, but I'm feeling like, uh, you know, it was a, an acceptable bet to make. So I'm going to take one week off. Uh, you won't be reading me at the athletic. You won't be hearing me on the van cast and, and I'll also be off of Canucks hour. Like I'm taking a full week off entirely. I think I might check in with like Halford and Bruff on the Tuesday and, and do my usual Friday hit with Donnie and Dolly, but that's it. Uh, otherwise I am going to be off, off for a full week. And then I'm going to stay down in Palm Desert and just enjoy the sunshine and, and some recuperation and try and put it all together after the pandemic. Like, the fact is, is that because I spent the summer of 2020 in Edmonton at the rink every day, you know, I kind of haven't really taken more than about 10 days off at any point since the summer of 2019. And, you know, I've, I've found myself needing it more and more, especially of late. Uh, this has been a particular grind of a hockey season. And, and so I'm going to take a bit of time. Uh, I'll still be writing. Uh, after, you know, about the 11th of April, I'm, I'm off for, you know, almost two full weeks, but uh, a lot of that time is weekend time. So you'll really notice it for one week next week, and then we'll be back. But Farhan, you're going to do an episode, right? We're going to do two next week. So I'm going to get Harm on for one of them. Uh, and then we're also going to schedule an interview for the other one, preferably from with uh, someone from the Canucks front office. And uh, we'll, we'll work on that. Um, yeah, we, we're absolutely going to make sure the VIPs get taken care of really well. Uh, next week, it'll either be Monday or Tuesday for the first show. And then the next one will be on uh, Friday after back-to-back games, Wednesday, Thursday is what I'm thinking at this point, right? So, uh, we'll probably have the harm episode next Friday. And then early in the week, we'll arrange for the interview, uh, to, um, make sure again, that the VIPs get their fix of Canucks, even without Drancer. So here's what I'm thinking, right? I am thinking that you will be away for a week. So Sunday and Wednesday and Thursday, and Saturday. So, you know, four games will have passed before you come back on the show. And in that time, the Canucks are going to win all four and everybody's going to be back on the bandwagon. And we're going to revisit this whole thing again. And you're going to be losing your mind as to what you've missed, you know, during all of that. And, you know, that'll be fun, too. I would not be I would not be happy to to miss a big Canucks win streak, but I'd be happy for the VIPs because I know they all root for the team. Um, and you know what? It would make it more interesting when I'm back in the saddle. So uh, anyway, it'll be fun to be down in Southern California and take some time. I, I really need it. I'll miss you guys, though, uh, the week I'm away. And then me and Farhan will get back to the usual, the usual business of, of talking hockey with all of you. 
uh, something we love to do and we particularly love to do it in this format. And by the way, the first leg of my trip, because I'm driving down so that I can take Wallace, because he's still in a cone following his um, you know, lengthy uh, recuperation from a broken paw, which became cast sores, which has just been a mess. Oh, anyway, no. I know it's been terrible. So he's still in a cone. So I'm driving him down. I'm driving down to Palm Desert uh, for my vacation. And Farhan is actually going to drive me to the Bellingham Airport to rent a car for, for the journey. So the first leg of my trip is a van cast leg of my trip. We should have done the live van cast from the car. But, we uh, that would have been good with Wallace <laughs> yelping in the background. But it's a van cast road trip. So uh, Farhan. Conrado, is Wallace on LTIR? He is on LTIR, and uh, they're discussing it at the GM meetings. Everyone expects that uh, there's foul play afoot. Um, a foot. You know, my dog he's got a tougher, broken paw. My, my, my dog is tougher than your dog because my dog got hit by a rock uh, <laughs> a week ago in the foot, and Luna yelped like you wouldn't believe, and uh, like I thought she was dead, and she just lifted off. Yeah, yeah. So, but here's the thing: when Wallace broke his foot, he never yelped. He never even told me. I just noticed that he was limping and in pain, and took him to the vet, and he had a broken foot. Like he never at any point indicated that anything was wrong. So I don't know that Luna's tougher than Wallace. It seems like maybe the opposite. All right, we'll see. <laughs> just, like the, just like the Blue Jays and Mariners. Well, I, we'll I have mean, to wait. We don't even need to see there. That's going to give me months of butter enjoying the um, Dude, I'm gas not, I'm not even I'm not even going to pay attention until the All-Star break. Because well, we, we well, by that point, the Mariners will already be out of because that's not true. <laughs> See, they always they always start the season really well. They have the last couple of years, and then it's at the end it kind of fades. Last year right. it changed, so we will see. You know, this will be that year where they they get hot at the start, and then everybody can say, "Oh, they're going to fade again." So we'll talk about it at the All Star break. Yeah, um, sounds we, good. I mean, I'll be I'll be laughing about it well before that. But um, <laughs> oh, when your first three pitchers get injured, and you've got slumps at the top of the lineup, and they're third behind the Yankees, and hell, Baltimore is going to be ahead of the Jays. Anyway, um, every all the Jays get hurt and the Jays just win every game 10-0-3. Like they're such a they're such a buzzsaw, man. It's so funny. The idea that the Jays aren't going to be good is going to age very poorly for you, my friend. Anyway, I'll enjoy California, but I'll see you tomorrow, and uh, and we'll see all the VIPs next week. But thank you guys all for joining us on a tough night for the Canucks, a four three loss to the St. Louis Blues, while everyone they're chasing wins on the out of town scoreboard. Worst case scenario. But it a is over scenario for us here, not not that the Canucks lost, but because we got to spend all this time with you guys. You guys are the best. Thanks for joining us. Bye.